Last time we were here, I uh, spoke on Deuteron uh, Deuteronomy, on Luke 15, which is a parable of three parts. Funny how those parts, it's always three, uh, about losing things. And we found out that we were once lost, now are found. Israel is lost and will be found. And sometimes you lose yourself within your life a little bit uh, and have to go find that missing piece. But we found out that all is well in the end because you know somebody's going to come find us or if we search diligently we find it what we've lost. Uh, and sometimes it seems like we've gone too far and we're dead to somebody but then we find ourselves and come back. Now this whole conversation of chapter 14, 15, and 16 uh, started out, if we'll go back to chapter 14 real quick, I'll, I'll do a little catch up here. Because I'm saving chapter 14 for next month. It actually fits with trumpets pretty good. In chapter 14 of the book of Luke, uh, as it so happened, Christ went into the house of one of the rulers, which is a Pharisee, to have lunch. And the Pharisees that were there watched him very closely because they, you know they Pharisees were a, were a, a bright group of people, highly educated. Most of them were very were very rich, influential, and they got there because they worked very hard to get to that point, uh, even to the uh, uh, sacrifice of the Sabbath, uh, probably on many occasions. So they were they were watching him to see what he was going to do. And, of course, this whole conversation takes off and takes up three chapters in, in the Bible. So, Christ healed a man with dropsy. Now, dropsy is a, let me see if I can find, dropsy is a condition where water is retained in the body. It's not a, a disease, but a symptom of a disease. So, he healed a man who had dropsy, and Jesus knew what the question was going to be. Why did you heal that guy? It's, you know, you're working on the Sabbath type of thing. So, he asked, he asked the folks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And, of course, that puts the Pharisees in a tough place because to them it was. You know, they were strict law keepers and they, uh, you, read the, you read the Bible and you find out it's not, it's okay to do certain things. And yet, down through the ages from Moses forward, you know, as we all know, the sages, if we want to put those in quotes, had, had dissected the Bible to a point where it was all based on man tra man's tradition and most of it was oral, it wasn't even written down. And what was written down was confusing. Then it had to be re-dissected and rewritten. And, you know, I worked, uh, as most of you know, for a Jewish community center for several years before I just retired. And they live on their tradition. And they're proud of living on their tradition. And so were these people. And they had, they, they had become very rich by using those traditions because it helped them control lesser classes of people. So Jesus was really taking these folks to task, and we'll get into a little bit more of that next month on chapter 14. I want to jump up here to chapter 16 today. It's interesting how this whole conversation goes. And I, you know, I started in the middle, <laughs> so I'm sort of scrambling up the parables a little bit. But as it turns out, uh, 
what I thought would be a, a one-month deal has, has sort of expanded uh, in my mind a little bit. And I thought I would look at chapter 16 here a little. So, as we know, Jesus had talked about the parable of the lost sheep, about the flock who is, you know, in the building or in the wilderness, as it was written, about the one sheep that had gotten lost, and the shepherd goes out to find the one sheep, leaving the rest of the flock there, which sort of tells us in a spiritual sense, because after all, everything that's written down physically has a spiritual meaning for us now, because we are children of the Spirit. So that, that message then became that the group that's left must take care of itself, which means there is a structure for that. And notice I said structure, not authority figures, because we're all servants of one another. So that we would take care of ourselves within the group, looking out for each other until our, our shepherd got back with the one who was lost, and then we have a big party and a cookout because the one came back. And that's really what the story said in that, that particular thing. The parable of the lost coin being about the headdress that a woman would wear pictures the wife of a husband. The headdress being ten coins in the forehead area. If one is lost, then, then you lose some of the value of, of the headdress. Uh, it, you, it can be seen. It's like a, you know, a sore thumb or a sore spot. Spiritually speaking, if you, if you lose one of those frontlets over the eyes, you're literally losing at least one of the commandments. Ten, you know, the number ten has a meaning here. So at some point in our lives, you know, maybe, maybe we get behind on something and, and you know, you, you lose one of those coins. Physically, they're worth very little. Spiritually, you know, they're the framework of, of our belief. Ten commandments. The parable of the lost son, you know, perhaps we have seen over our church life, if you will, folks who, for whatever reason, walk out the door and never come back. And you, you, you hope at some point that that person comes to their senses and is able to come back. And that really, that really gets us spiritually because that one person could be us if we're not exercising the Ten Commandments, if we're not exercising the spiritual principles that we have. Today, chapter 16 of the book of Luke, Luke talks about the unjust steward. Now, I, I almost put unjust, comma, incompetent here because as you read it, you're going to find out if we put this in a modern context exactly what this gentleman did. So, chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man. Now you think about this physically. We're reading a physical story. He's telling a physical story about physical people who do, do stupid things. Think about it spiritually in our lives. What happens if we don't manage our spiritual life correctly? That's what we could kind of look at this as. There was a certain rich man who had a steward. A steward is, in modern language, a foreman. Think of a thousand-acre ranch. Think of a large company with 100 or 200 people working in it. You need a foreman. This is the guy who's in charge of everything else so that the owner doesn't necessarily have to be there you know, day to day. This is the guy running the day-to-day -day operations. That's what, that's what we can call it. 
certain man, rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought against him that he was wasting the owner's goods. Now let's think about that for a minute. So you say you're running a ranch and you got cattle and some disappear. Say you're running a warehouse and you've got men underneath you and certain things, commodities start disappearing. Auditors come in, they count, take an inventory, count everything in the warehouse or on the ranch or whatever, how many computers you got, whatever the case may be, they find out that there's commodities stuff missing. That's, what, that's what's happening right here, right now. An accusation is brought because somebody goes, Mr. Richman, I think we've got a problem. Auditor gets called, company comes in, they audit the whole business, they look at the books, they look at the inventory, look at how many brands of cattle you got, you know, what, whatever the case may be, the one man that's on the hook for this is the guy that runs the day-to-day -day operations. And that's who we're talking about here today. Well, spiritually speaking, we're all stewards, right? We manage ourselves. We manage our lives. We manage people around us. There's, there's a lot of things that you can fold into this steward because that's exactly what we are supposed to be. Steward of our wallets, steward of our thoughts, steward of our actions. All of those things come into play here. And once in a while, <laughs> maybe, we get audited. Something happens and we get audited. So, the rich man called the steward to him and said, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship. I need you to tell me why we're missing a thousand cattle. Why we don't have enough boxes in the warehouse. Why aren't there enough cars on the lot to sell? That's, that's basically what this guy's being asked at this point. Give an account because if you can't, if you want to extrapolate this here, the verse says you can no longer be steward. I'm going to let you go. And of course, we live in the state of Texas, which is an at-will state, meaning I don't have to have a reason to fire somebody. I don't, I, you know, and if I'm the steward, I can quit anytime I feel like it. And maybe this guy, in this case, should have probably quit a couple of weeks ago before the audit. You know, if you really want to go, go nuts with it here, you can come up with all kinds of stuff. But then spiritually, where would that leave us if we did that? You know, if we quit two weeks earlier before the audit, well, maybe we're not really managing ourselves very well at all. So the steward said within himself, what shall I do? What am I going to do? I'm, I'm near the end of my career. Because if you read this, it says, my master is taking my stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. Meaning, guy's probably older. He's got a big house drives a nice car, or two, or three, or whatever, right? He's not going to be on the corner begging for dimes and nickels. Everybody in town knows who he is. What a shame that would bring. He would be found out for being, you know, an incompetent employee. So he says, I re resolve myself what I'm going to do. Putting it in modern terms, he says, I'm going to go to the people that I've lent to and collect back. That's basically what he's going to do. So in verse 5, he says he calls everyone to his ma calls every one of the master's debtors to him. Now, let's break off real quick here and go to Leviticus 25. 
because we're going to I think we're going to see a clue as to what this steward did to make him unjust to me it also makes him incompetent because he, he thought he could get away with something that lawfully he wasn't supposed to even try Leviticus 25 and verse 36 we'll start in verse 35 says, if one of your brethren becomes poor, now notice the word brethren, we're not talking about strangers, we're not talking, you know, you got to put your mindset, you know, you're in Israel in the day. This, this, is, this is told from, you know, from a Jewish Israelite, if you will, perspective. It's, you know, it's not even modern day now because we are a melting pot. You know, I mean, we're, we're all brethren and there's different colors and, you know, some of us have more tans than others. You know, some of us, you know, are different flavors or whatever, and, and we're we're all brothers and sisters. Back then, it wasn't that way. They were people were very clannish. People were were stayed together. Families were multi generational, so that you had you had a whole different culture than there is today. So, if one uh, verse thirty five Leviticus twenty five, if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you take no usury or interest in other words don't charge the person interest from him but but respect your God that your brother may live the, the person that that's being loaned getting getting the loan needs it it's it's just not you know it's not for any happenstance at all there is a uh, dire need here this person has lost a job you know three or four payments behind on the mortgage whatever kids are going hungry whatever the case may be the person who needs the loan is in dire straits and it's it's almost mandatory that somebody that has give part of it to the one who needs you shall not lend verse 37 you shall not lend your money for usury nor lend him your food at a profit I am the Lord your God that brought you out of Egypt now we go back to Luke 16. Verse 5. He calls, the steward now calls the master's debtors to him. So we know that the steward has loaned commodities or sold commodities or whatever the case may be to countrymen. We know that for a fact because this is kind of, I think, where we're going here. And he has set a price that would give him a profit. Now this profit could be interest, it could be commission, or it could be an inflated price so that the, you know, some way so that that inflation comes back to the steward in his pocket. That's what we're talking about here. That's why it's called an unjust steward. But to me, he's also incompetent because he hasn't collected. Why didn't he collect it before the audit? See, we, we have a problem here. And this, this can crop up in our lives spiritually. We get behind spiritually so that we become unprofitable. And then we try to do something weird to catch up. So this guy's kind of, you know, he's got some things going on in his life. So now he, now he all of a sudden... <laughs> In order to pull his, himself out of the fire, he comes up with, up with this bright idea. He says, how much do you owe my master? To the first person. Now, he, there are, you know, it looks like there are several people involved here who owe money. So he says, how much do you owe? 
And the first one said a hundred measures of oil. Now I've got a note hill here that one measure is eight or nine gallons. So let's add that up. A hundred times eight or nine gallons, we're talking about 900 gallons of oil. Olive oil pressed in a container. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Then and now. <laughs> Just think how much that is when you go buy your, you know, your, your liter and a half of, of olive, you know, the olive oil we buy at Sam's. It's almost 20 bucks. So imagine how, how much money that represented to that, man, to that owner, to that rich man, who's looking to collect what's owed him. Well, now we know that the steward has inflated the price. How much do you owe? A hundred measures. So the steward says, take your bill. So, so now we know that an invoice has been written, which is going to happen normally in business. An invoice has been written. It's going to have, you know, paid in full, deduct 2%. You, and you, if you've seen a bill, that's a lot of times if you pay in full within 30 days, you take 2% off. That's normal business. Well, down at the bottom, there's probably going to be an interest charge. There might be a commission charge. What the steward says is track that off and pay me back 50. So how much did he sell to begin with? 50. What was he trying to get back? 100. Unjust? Maybe incompetent. How many times do we get ourselves in a wang spiritually where we're trying to scratch that bill off and correct it? You know, that's kind of what, what we need to look at here today because we're Christians and we're being, working ourselves to have spirit bodies and spirits within us. And we work in a spiritual realm instead of a physical realm. Okay, so take your bill, set it down and write 50. Then he said to the next guy, how much do you owe? He said 100 measures of wheat. Now, a measure of wheat is 10 or 12 bushels. So we're talking between 100 and 120 bushels of wheat. I don't know how much a bushel of wheat goes for today, but it had to be a lot of, worth a lot of money to that master who wanted it back. Stewart said, take your bill and write 80. Pay me 80 and it pays the bill. That's a 20% reduction. The guy with the oil got a 50% reduction. Now notice, here, here's, the, here's the crux. Verse 8, so the master commended the steward because he had dealt shrewdly with the customers. Notice he didn't try and get the whole bill because the guy probably couldn't pay it. Notice he didn't try to, to finagle anything. He just got what was owed to the master and he did not get anything for himself at all. Now if you think about that spiritually, if we, if we really mess up and we get caught and then we go back to God and say, I'm sorry, how do I rectify this bill? Something's going to happen to us physically or spiritually where we have to get ourselves back to a level of soundness. You see how much we might lose. Does that translate into reward in the end? Who knows? You see, that's, that's kind of where I think this goes. The steward didn't make his commission, didn't collect any interest. There was no profit. But he managed to keep his job. Sometimes we get ourselves in the exact same place where we get into a spiritual hole 
And we just might manage to get ourselves out of that hole enough to keep our, our job, which is the reward of eternity. Maybe in the end, the place that was prepared for us might be given to somebody else and we take a lesser position. Don't know. But this is, I think this is what we're trying to, to be taught here by this parable. This is a worker. This is a converted person in the church. This person messed up. But he acted shrewdly, monetarily speaking here, to get himself to a point where he got back in the Master's good graces. Sometimes I think we have to do the same thing spiritually. There are times in our lives, and I speak personally, I know for sure this happens, because even as long as I've been in the church, I know I've messed up, and I know I need to repent, and I know that I am going, if I don't, I'm going to lose a whole lot more than I might if I pay the, the debt off and come back. And I really think that's what we're trying to see here. The interesting thing is the, the rest of the verse. Because I think this is a lesson also. The master commended the unjust steward because he had, dwelt, he had dealt shrewdly. Then he continues to say, For the sons of this world, in other words, unconverted people, are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Now, broadly speaking, broadly speaking, stereotypically, if you will, generally, is a generalization, people in the world are better at money than we are. And that's, that's what we're talking about here. In other words, this, this gentleman messed up physically. That's all they ever knew was physical. They never thought about spiritual. They never thought about motives. As long as they didn't sin, they were okay. Well, God is trying to tell us a different story here. But he's making a point that we can learn from the world in how to conduct business if we do it in the right way. Notice... Pharisees had a love of money. They made, they made their self wealthy. They did it at the cost of other people. It was, it was gain to them, and they were, you know, they were proud of what they did. God is saying, it's okay to use money, but don't expect to profit. That's why we went back to Leviticus to read what the law was. This gentleman was dealing with Jews, expecting to make a profit. He says, worldly people do it all the time. That's how they get away with making a living. You could learn from that physically, but don't do it spiritually. Don't try and cheat yourself into the kingdom. It's, it, it's, it may be a little hard to put together. But we can be wise, worldly, and use the gifts that we've been given shrewdly without cheating and the profit then becomes not today but everlasting imagine using the one gift in Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents the gentleman that got the one talent went and hid it right buried it said you're an austere boss I was scared of you Imagine using that one talent and dealing with it in an honorable, profitable way without cheating how much he would have been blessed. 
this gentleman here, this steward, learned that lesson. He learned it monetarily. We're learning it spiritually. So in verse 9, Jesus says, Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. Notice this. It's, an, it's a weird comment. Use your, use your physical gifts. Use your physical talents to better your life. But do it in a way that you make friends on the outside. That's a lesson we can all learn. Now, how, do, how, do you, how did they do it back then? Well, a landowner left the corners of his field without harvesting so that people, the poor people could come and glean. And there was probably ways in which they made donations in the temple. There were probably ways that they could give to poor families, help families out. We do the same thing today. Granted, you know, some of it's done by the government. You know, we pay taxes. Some of it's done in other social ways. But it, have, you ever, have you ever given to a food bank? Gone to a sandwich shop or gone to a soup kitchen and helped out behind the counter? In a, you know, in a way that helps poor people? Those are the physical things that we can do that gain us friends in the world. They recognize the face. It also builds rewards in the kingdom. Because we're getting out of ourselves to try and help somebody else to better them in this life. There's a lot of people that need help today. A lot of people. And once you give that first check, start getting all kinds of stuff in the mail. <laughs> we know. <laughs> we, we know. But it's one thing we can do, Helen and I, so that we help people in our community. Just write a check every, you know, every six months or whatever the case may be. We help out the Dallas Food Bank. It's not much. Being retired now, you know, I'm on a fixed income, so it's not like we got a lot extra. But it's something, it's something we can do physically that sort of teaches a spiritual lesson. It might mean get on your knees and pray for somebody. They're like, you know, like Johnny said, there's a list back there. Go back and take the notes. Get on our knees and pray for the people. Father, help them out in their dire need. You never know when we collect in the kingdom an everlasting gift that was sowed in a physical world. Then he continues in verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. Now this, to me, this goes back again to Matthew 25. Where the one who was given the ten talents made another ten. The one who was given five talents made another five. And the reward was you've been faithful in a little. Be faithful in the kingdom. Here's, go, go rule ten cities. Imagine what our faithfulness today in the small things that we do, not only for one another, but in the larger world, outside our doors, that will reap benefits that we don't see until we're reborn in the kingdom of spirit beings. And I think this is what Christ is saying here. We, we who are faithful now are going to be rewarded much greater having a spirit body. The reverse, he who is unjust in what is least, will be unjust in much. If you go down that road, if you stay on the steward's road, 
Well, you're going to reap. You're going to reap what you sow. Therefore, verse eleven: If you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, if you can't manage your life on this earth, and you know, I speak from experience. I've had trouble managing mine. We've gotten ourselves into credit situations. We've gotten ourselves into trouble uh, monetarily because we made decisions that were not the best. We got ourselves stretched too thin. You know, you live on credit cards long enough, it catches up with you. I mean, that's pretty simple. You know, you, you got three kids in the house, and they all need clothes, and they all need shoes, and they all need books to go to school, and whatever else the case may be. And well, whoop, down goes a credit card. Another one comes in the mail, oh, we can use that too. We'll use that, you take them to the limit, pretty soon you've gone too far. And you, then you understand <laughs> the principle of managing money. We've learned that. We're, we're pretty frugal these days. <laughs> I have to say, we really are. Okay. Verse 12. If you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? And it's, I think that's kind of Christ's way of saying that if we don't manage ourselves now, how do you expect to have a lot in the kingdom? And I, that's something that uh, you think about when you get in trouble. I, a lot of times I don't think we think about it enough in this life. Really, what, what uh, some of the, the things that we decide on happen to us. Let's look at some New Testament uh, verses here real quick. We'll go to 1 Timothy 6. In verse 6. The hymns that we sang today, Vorney special music, Great is Thy Faithfulness, really, this, this verse really amplifies what, what we've sang this morning already. 1 Timothy 6, 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. The Pharisees weren't content with what they had. They, and, and really, this, this set of parables is dealing with Pharisaical lives because he, Christ is trying to show the Pharisees that what they've done to manage the tribes and manage the country, the government, has been all wrong. They're proud people. They think they're important. And yet... When you look at it historically, and yet, they were under Roman occupation. Think about that. You had people with beautiful robes, broad phylacteries, tassels, which you know, have certain meanings in the society, marching around, sitting in the best places in the synagogues, thinking themselves righteous. And Jesus is having a conversation with them saying, you idiots. You think yourselves great. Here's some examples of people who've made some bad mistakes and will pay for them. And he's speaking directly to them, which we'll see in just a minute. But let's read, let's continue to read here in uh, 1 Timothy. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and is certain we'll carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. 
I was thinking about this this morning. We, Helen and I were talking as we came over. I made the statement that we've always had shelter. We've always had food. We've always had clothing. And we've always had transportation. There were times when we didn't have much money. There were times when somebody had to bring us a, a bag of food to eat and help out. But God has always provided for us. I don't, I don't know if, if I would... I don't know that I'd want to be rich. Let's put it that way. More comfortable, maybe. Because there's always that, you know, that what if that, <laughs> that you look at your bank account and don't know if you can cover it. But, you know, what if you win the lottery and you got $600 million in the bank? What kind of person is that going to make you? Are you going to manage your life any better than you manage it now? Are you going to look outside yourself and help people? Are you going to quit going to church because you've got all this wealth? I mean, you start asking the questions and finding out about what's up here, <laughs> the seed that has been planted, and, you, and I come to the conclusion that I really don't want it. I mean, physically speaking, if I could, I, you know, I've got plans about having property and houses and a shop out back so my son and I could work on old muscle cars. I mean, that's, you know, that's one of those pipe dreams that you think about. But if it never happens, is it going to break my heart? No. <laughs> is it going to affect my life? No. My life is with God. My life is on this earth as a priest in the kingdom of God. Maybe I'll drive a spiritual muscle car in the kingdom. You know, it won't need any work. It'll be perfect. You know, maybe the rewards my 66 Fairlane fair will actually be running by then. We'll see. <laughs> for those who don't know, it's been sitting on jack stands for eight years. <laughs> it's one of those that never gets finished. But let, it, let us continue here. But those who desire to be rich fall into, into temptation and a snare. In other words, if you put that first, if you put riches first, if you're a Pharisee and you want the power and the wealth and the prestige and the importance... You will fall into snares and foolish and harmless lusts will drown you in destruction and perdition. That's, that's really why I don't need it. Maybe someday in a pipe dream, eh, it'd be fun to try. Not now. Not now. Not anymore. Because verse 10... For the love of money, putting money first in your life, having three and four jobs, trying to buy the big house, having the truck, the car, the boat, the jet skis, all the other things, being an important person on the city council, making decisions, having people look up to you, oh, that guy's important because he's rich and he's got a big house, dot, dot, dot. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. See, we're talking about the steward. The guy who was supposed to know how to handle his job. Which for us means we shouldn't worry about it. 
If we've got here food and clothing, we should be content. Helen and I have never been homeless. We've never gone hungry. We've never had fancy cars. But we've always had everything we needed. God has provided everything we've needed. And for that, I think we've basically been content. We don't need anything else. What would we do with it? You only wear one pants at a time. Drive one car at a time. We got three. The little red one sits out there three and four weeks before we drive it. I mean, that's a blessing for us because, you know, we've got two old cars that we drive around during the week and then we have that for the weekends. And it's a, it's a good car. It's got a warranty on it. And if we need work, just, you know, you just take it in and have it fixed. That's a huge blessing, which we're very grateful for. But otherwise, we'd be driving, you know, cars got 150,000 miles on it and dents and dings and everything else. Paint falling off. That's, what, that's the stuff we drive every day, which is perfect. <laughs> For the place we live and the area that we have to drive around in, God has blessed us with the perfect cars to drive. We don't care. So we see then that we can get ourselves into a ditch if we're not careful about how we run our lives. Let's also go over here to James chapter 1. And here James is talking about the perspective of being rich or poor. He says, let the lowly brother glory in exaltation. You know, when, when, you're, when you're poor monetarily, you, you, your sights are set lower. So that when you're rewarded with a gift, somebody gives you a gift or you have something extra, you can really, really enjoy it. So imagine a person who is content with his life, as we've just read, when given something special, thank you, Father, for the gift. What are we going to do with it? We're going to make sure we use it wisely and maybe help somebody else, else out as well. Notice the rest of it here. But the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with burning heat than it withers the grass, if flower falls and the beautiful appearance perishes. For all of their wealth, the Pharisees of Christ's day would all grow old and may be subject to higher taxes by the Roman government and if they fall out of favor are going to be destitute and poor and homeless. What a humiliation that would be for them. And I think that's what James is talking about here. Those people will soon face just what the poor faces and be humiliated by it because they don't know how to live that way. Rich person has a, has a staff of people to do whatever they need. Poor people like, you know, like, like us, <laughs> we don't have a staff. You know, if you want a meal, you go cook it. If you want to do the laundry, you go do it. You know, we don't have somebody to go do our laundry. We don't have somebody to polish our shoes. We're lucky we got a son who's a good mechanic that we can take our cars and fix them. 
That's a pretty good blessing. That we glory in. That we glory in. He knows what he's doing. So the rich man will fade away in his pursuits. You won't keep it forever. You came into, the, into this world with nothing. You're going to be buried with nothing. And somebody else is going to enjoy your wealth. So the lesson is to be happy with what we have. And not to trust in the riches. But like most poor people have to do, trust in the Lord, especially Christians. Trust in the Lord to supply the need that we have. Okay. Going back to Luke. Where are we? Okay. Let's go back to uh, Luke 16 and verse 13. And when you understand the context of the conversation Jesus is having with the Pharisees, this becomes really more poignant. No servant can serve two masters. For the steward, it meant that he had to make a choice. The steward was a steward. Spiritually speaking, he was in the church family. He was doing well. He was profitable for his boss. His problem came when he decided to make a profit for himself and not his boss. Because really that's what got found out. He had done a side deal to a cousin or a nephew or a brother or whatever. Done it on the side maybe without the master's full knowledge of what he was doing. And he got caught because he had not collected because the person had not repaid. You know, if the payments had been made on time, probably nobody would have been the wiser. But the payment didn't get made on time. It was overdue. It was inventoried and he was found out. And then he had to scramble to catch up. Because he was trying to profit for himself. Therefore, no servant can serve two masters. We cannot try to have our feet in both worlds. Just can't. You got to commit one or the other. And really, it's better, even if you commit to the world, to just go and never start a church life. Never come to Christ. All of us have faced that, that question too, haven't we? There came a day when we had to make a choice. Do I go obey God or do I just live in the world and live my life and whatever happens, happens. I'm not going to do this because I want to do my own thing. I want to be my own boss. I don't want to have to, you know, which a lot of people do. I don't want to follow the rules. No servant can serve two masters. For either he hates one and loves the other or else he's loyal to one and despises the other. Imagine trying to be a Christian and dabble over here and make a side deal. You can't do it. It'll drive you insane spiritually, if not physically. Because you're managing a hidden part of your life that will be found out at some point. 
Nothing we do goes unseen. And if you, you know, if you have any kind of internet connection, nothing you do goes unseen anymore either. <laughs> Every keystroke we make on, on Google, somebody knows it. Every time we go somewhere and we have an Apple, Apple phone in our car, they know it. They know where you go, they know what you do, they know how much money you spend. So physically and spiritually, you got a problem. <laughs> you know? So, a couple verses here to finish. 2 Corinthians 13. Second Corinthians 13 and verse 11. When it all comes down to it, when we rationalize, when we hypothesize, we make all kinds of excuses or reasons or whatever else we do, it comes down to this. Finally, brethren, become complete. If you've committed to this way, complete the work. Complete, be mature, be perfect in your ways. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. If we're content with what we have, if we're trying to help others, if we're living our lives as an example, if we're answering the questions when asked, that's a peaceful way to live. We're not trying to get ahead in the world. We're not trying to impress anybody. We're not trying to be boss. We're just trying to live a quiet, peaceful life. And notice the rest of the sentence, and the God of love and peace will be with you. No, war, no more war going on. You know, when you, when you go back and read Romans 7 and you see the war that Paul fought in his mind about trying to do good and the carnal nature within him wanted to, to do bad, you can imagine the conversations he must have had in his mind. And don't we all? Don't we all? If you do that long enough, it'll drive you nuts. It really will. You can't compete in both worlds and succeed. And finally, in Romans 12. And I suppose, I mean, we could go back and read a whole bunch of this, but I'll just leave it at this. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, and really I think that's, you know, that's one of those statements that, a generalization that it's not always possible. Because we get, you know, our carnal nature comes up from time to time and gets in our way. But as much as we can overcome our carnal nature, if we want to add that in there, as much as depends on us, how well we're functioning spiritually, if you want to put it in there, live peaceably with all men. When the cop stops you and gives you a ticket for speeding, don't argue with them like the lady did and then she hung herself. 
if that's exactly if that's what happened we don't know yet if it was suicide or not for that lady in Texas to die in jail don't make a scene and have a nervous policeman shoot you because there's a lot of nervous policemen today don't go to an area in town that you know is dangerous and put yourself in danger that's not that's not a peaceful thing to do I mean we can go on and on and on physically spiritually it's the same thing don't get ourselves in a city and I'm speaking to me too trust me we can't afford to put ourselves in spiritual situations where we'll have to dig ourselves out of a ditch I mean I don't have a shovel big enough <laughs> for me let alone anybody else <sighs> that's it for today